But today we're going to continue in our study through the book of Revelation. So if you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 this morning, <clears throat> and I'm going to shake things up a little bit just because you haven't been shaken up enough, having services outside. Um, I, I, mark your places in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to finish up there. But, but we're going to start in Romans 13. So open to Revelation 20, mark your place, and then turn over to Romans chapter 13. That's our starting place for our study uh, this morning. You're going to Romans 13. We'll finish up in Revelation 20. How many of you have ever had the, op- the occasion to where you have asked the question, who's in charge around here? I see a show of hands. Any of you ever asked that question? Who's in charge around here? Usually, you know, we, uh, you know, you go somewhere, maybe it's a store, you got poor customer service, or you, they left you waiting forever at the doctor's office. I say that like it's something new. Um, or if you're a doctor, I'm sorry, do something about your waiting room for crying out loud. Um, <laughs> uh, the restaurant, you know, that some, some food comes out that you didn't order or the service is just horrible, whatever it is. I mean, I think all of us have had that occasion. And usually we ask the question because something is out of. It's out of order. It's out of stock. It's out of control. Something's out of line. And I'm out of patience. And I want to know who's in charge around here, right? Now, <clears throat> when we ask that question... What we really want to know is this. We want to know who's responsible. We want to know with whom does the authority lie to mitigate this problem because this is a problem that needs to be mitigated. That's the idea. And ultimately, the Bible clarifies for us the ultimate answer of who's in charge around here. It's in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul says. He says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And so ultimately... The ultimate answer to the question of who's in charge around here, well, ultimately it's God. God is the one who's ultimately in charge. But understand, what this is teaching, and what, as we'll see, really the totality of the Bible teaches, is that on earth, God takes his authority, and then what he does is he appoints men and women into positions of authority, And their responsibility is to exercise that authority to carry out his ordinances. Now, we know that there are abuses of power. That's not the question here. We're not talking about the sinful abuse of power. What we're talking about is God in his authority appointing men and women into positions of authority to carry out his ordinances. And Paul makes that the point abundantly clear here in Romans 13 that the authorities that exist are appointed by God and that there's no authority except that which comes from God. And so what does God do? God orders, God establishes, God ordains that all authority in marriage, in, in uh, government, in family, in, in the work, in, in, in the church, 
It's his authority ultimately, but he deputizes men and women to exercise that authority. It's that way in your kid's school. For crying out loud, it's that way at In-N-Out. When you go for lunch there today, there is a, there is a level of authority that's there. And I want you to notice again here, if you're in Romans chapter 13, look there in verse 1. Paul says we are to be subject to governing authorities. That word subject is a Greek word. It's the word hupotasso. It's a Greek compound word. It means under rank. And, and the idea is that we are to submit to God-ordained authority. We see this emphasized and applied throughout the New Testament in many different uh, contexts of our life. There's practical implications, practical application in Scripture for how we are to submit to the authority that God ordains. In James 4, 7, tells us there that man is to submit to God. In Ephesians 5.22, it tells us there that wives are to submit to their husbands. As a matter of fact, I think I'll just call an audible and we'll just dwell on that right there and spend the rest of the day talking, ladies. No, but Ephesians 5.22 says that. There's, a, there's a, a, an application right there for us for this command. Ephesians 6.1 says that children are to submit to their parents. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, younger people are to submit to, the, to their elders. Hebrews 13.7, Christians are to submit to the church leadership. And, and then here in Romans 13, every soul is to be subject or submitted to government. Now, historically, and this is, this is kind of key to where we're going to be, God has always mitigated his rule through his people. He's always mitigated his rule through his people. And it began with Adam and Eve in the Old Testament. You, remember, you look there in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, and God says that they are to have dominion over all creation. That word dominion, literally in the Hebrew, it means to rule and to reign. And then you see the same thread running throughout the Old Testament. You have uh, Abraham, you have Moses, you have Joshua and others. You have uh, David, and it runs all through the kings of Israel, uh, all exercising God-ordained authority to rule and reign. This is God's authority ordained and, and given to these men to rule and to reign with God. <clears throat> this thread then goes from the Old Testament and it even runs into the New Testament. You see this God-ordained authority given to the apostles. And, and then for the last 2,000 years, this God-ordained authority runs through the church elders in the local churches. And so again, God's authority, God mitigating His rule through people. And that brings us now to Revelation Chapter 20, verse 4, which says that ultimately the time is coming when all the elements of God's rule through his people on earth, well, it's going to come together with Jesus Christ here on the earth in the flesh. And at that point in time, then at last we will truly, fully and completely rule together with Jesus Christ. It will be God's rule and he will rule this world, and we will rule it with him. And it's the same con continuity that God mitigates his rule through people. <clears throat> Here's the big idea of the lesson today. That if you are ruled by Jesus Christ, 
then you will rule with Jesus Christ. This is what we're going to look at today. If you will be ruled by Jesus, then you will rule with Jesus. But those who will not be ruled by Jesus Christ, who, who, who will insist upon being the captain of their own, sh- of their own ship, well, they will not be ruled with Christ, so they won't rule with Christ. Rather, they will be judged by Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at all of that today. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 is where we left off. John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so what we have here is Jesus has returned to the earth And he has uh, victoriously put down the rebellion. He has thrown the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And he has incarcerated Satan into the abyss, into into the, the bottomless pit. Uh, And and now what happened, now we read, is that there are thrones now established. We're talking about this millennial rule of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And we see these thrones that are established, and we see that there are those that are ruling with him on these thrones. Now, the question, first question we got to answer is, who is the they that we're talking about? John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, right? So who is the they that he's talking about? Now, let me just say, there's a lot of opinions about this. If you read enough commentaries, you're going to find a lot of opinions about who the they is that's being referred to here. But the the best answer to this question can be answered with another question. And the other question that that we must ask is this, is that who did God promise these thrones to? You want to know who the they is that sat on these thrones? Well, look through scripture and say, who did God promise the thrones to? And if you ask that question, and if you start looking, you're going to find that he promised it to several people, actually. First of all, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, it tells us there that God promised thrones to the Old Testament saints. Well, and then you move on into the New Testament. You you read 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Timothy 2, uh, Revelation chapter 2. What you find in those scriptures is that God promised the throne to New Testament as saints. So you've got Old Testament saints, you've got New Testament saints. And additionally, Jesus in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19, he promised thrones to the apostles, to his apostles, his 12 apostles, that they would sit on 12 thrones. Well, and finally then we read here in Revelation 20, this in verse 4, this last group that's going to be included He says, it's the souls of those who were beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. In other words, what it's promised as well to the the martyred tribulation saints. So here the picture is that all who died in faith of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, will ultimately rule and reign with him. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, including the apostles, including you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Uh, And the tribulation saints, those that will come into a saving faith during the tribulation after God has raptured his church. And so so this is this promise for for all of us to rule and reign with Christ. 
Again, just this ongoing thing. God mitigates his rule through men and that will continue into the tribulation period that you will rule and reign with Christ. Now, John concludes verse 4 here and he says that they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the millennial period. We call this the millennium that we will rule and reign together with Jesus Christ. Now, all Christians believe that Jesus is coming back to earth. All, everybody who calls themselves a Christian, they believe Jesus is returning. He's coming back to the earth. John 14, verse 3, Jesus made it pretty clear that he's returning. So, so that's really not debated by Christians, but there is a ton of debate concerning this thousand-year reign of Jesus that we know as the millennium. Now, um, basically, there's three primary positions about the millennium. And the, the, the first one is known as premillennialism. The second one is known as postmillennialism, and the third one is known as amillennialism. Let me, I'm going to explain them to you. Now, let me just say this. What I'm about to explain to you is it's, it's, it's what we call eschatology. It's the study of end times, okay? And, and I'm going to tell you this because it affects the, 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 the way churches execute their doctrine. But I, but I want to make it very clear that... that that what we're going to talk about here, number one, if I lose you, I'm not spending a lot of time here, so just, just, don't, just don't completely check out. Try to stay with me, because it's important we should understand um, each one of these positions and formulate our own opinion about what position we're going to take. Um, but, but secondly, uh, I'm, not going to do, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because, because there's more important stuff in the text to talk about, Okay. But, but I have to do some housekeeping. I have to talk about it. So three primary positions. There's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. So let's break it down. Premillennialism. This is the basic idea that Jesus returns before the millennial reign begins. In other words, Jesus comes victoriously, deals with Satan, deals with Antichrist, uh, and, and establishes his rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And, and that what will happen is that prior to Jesus' returning, that there will be an increase in wickedness on the earth prior to this happening. Um, and that, you know, when Jesus does return, as I said, he defeats Antichrist, he binds Satan, he restores the earth to the way it was during the Garden of Eden, to where it's Christ here ruling and reigning, uh, no more Satan, no more tempting of the nations. Uh, it's just a beautiful uh, utopian, uh, Pleasantville kind of way of living, man. And, and this is the way it's going to be, that, this, that he establishes this. Now, let me just tell you, this is our position as Reliance Church. This is our position as a Calvary Chapel. We, we are a pre-millennial belief system. This is, this is the way that we understand end times. A couple of reasons for that. One, because it follows the literal teaching of Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. And it's best when you're reading the Bible to interpret it literally whenever you can. And so, so it follows a literal interpretation of Revelation 19 and 20. And as well, it's consistent with, with the state of the world that Jesus said the world would be in when he comes back. That, that, well, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 
chapter 24, verse 12. He said, sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold before he returns. So, so this is consistent, this pre-millennial position, this is our position. Now, another position people take is a post-millennial position. And what they say, what they expect is that Jesus isn't going to return and then establish his rule and reign on earth. No, what they say is that there's, there's going to be a thousand year period uh, of, of time and then Jesus returns after that thousand year period of time. And, and the belief there is that Jesus is ushered in that there's thousand year period of time. Hey, well, what's taking place during that period of time before Jesus returns is that Christians are going to permeate the government. They're going to permeate the world centers of influence and that uh, predominantly what's going to happen is that most of the world is going to get saved before Jesus comes back. Now, a couple things about that. Number, number one, I guess I would say this, is that it's good. I think Christians should permeate the world centers of influence. I think it's good that Christians should endeavor to go into to everywhere that they possibly can and be faithful witnesses. So, you know, if you can go into Hollywood and be an actor and shine your light for Jesus Christ, you should. It's a great mission field that needs, you know, Jesus. Uh, and, and there's great influence that we can have Go, you know, going through that or, you know, in politics or whatever it is. Anywhere you can go that you can be a good, good witness for Christ, you should. But things are not going to get better. This is my second point. Things are not going to get better before Jesus comes back. Um, and so we reject post-millennialism because, number one, it's, it's contrary to what Jesus said. Jesus said it's going to get worse and worse and worse, not better and better and better. But secondly, we reject it because it's contrary to what we see already played out in the book of Revelation. Going through this book of Revelation, and if you've been with us going through it, you know it gets worse and worse and worse. So we are not post-millennial here, but that is a position people take. Now, the third position is known as amillennialism. The prefix A means no, and so basically this position is that there's no millennium. Uh, The basic idea is that Hey, what happened here is that Satan's already been bound by Jesus, the amillennialist would say. They would say, hey, you know, Jesus, he bound Satan through the work on the cross, dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. And so they would say that, you know, that's how the, the, the enemy is bound. And now what happens is, is that Jesus rules what we're living in. He's basically, hey, we live in the millennial kingdom now, the all-millennialist would say. Say that three times fast. We live in that age now. Satan, or Christ rules from heaven. He operates through the church. Now, there's a lot of problems with that position. Not the least of which is 1 Peter 5.8, which tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he will devour. So, so Satan has not been bound uh, he is still very much alive and well and living and active in the world, causing a lot of problems. I like what Jeff Lesane said about the amillennialist view. He said, look, if this is the millennium now, I want a refund, right? And so that's, it's just not that way. Now, let me say this. You can believe anyone you want. Okay, you can take the premillennial view, you can take the postmillennial view, you can take the amillennial view. Frankly, I don't really care because it's not a salvation issue. So, so you're free to form whatever opinion you want. I, I, I consider it an open hand issue. 
It's one of those things where we go, yeah, we disagree. We don't have to break fellowship over it. And here's why I say that, because there are things that are decidedly closed-hand issues. These are, you know, open-hand issues I won't suffer a paper cut for. It's like, we disagree, far out. I think you're wrong, but whatever, you know? And, and so, but the closed-hand issue is we cannot disagree on this or there's going to be serious problems. An example of that would be, you know, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for sin or the deity of Jesus Christ. So, so, so that would be a closed-hand issue. Those are, those are things like we go, well, gosh, Jesus is God, and he died on the cross for my sins. Well, those things are things that we got to go, man, we're, that, that is a seriously important doctrine that we, that we, we cannot divide over, okay? And so, so premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, you know, whichever way you want to believe. It, it, it is premillennial, and you can be wrong if you want. That's fine. It's up to you. All right. <laughs> Now, here's the deal. Here's what I don't want you to miss. This is the important part, okay? The important part, don't, don't miss the bigger message here. Here's the bigger message, the big idea. If you are ruled by Jesus, then you will rule with Jesus. That's the big idea of this text. If you're ruled by Jesus, you will rule with Jesus, all right? Now, if you won't be ruled by Jesus... Then what happens is when Jesus judges, he's not going to judge you based on his work. If you will be ruled by Jesus, if you say, surrender to you, Lord, I believe that you're God, that you died on the cross for my sins in my place, and and Lord, be the Lord of my life, rule my life, well, then you'll rule with him. But if you reject that and say, no, 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 I will determine what I'm going to believe. I will determine that I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. Then what's going to happen is that God will have to judge you. He will have to judge your works. He will have to judge your sin. He will not judge you by his work. He will judge you by your work. And that's where we're going now. This is what's coming into view now as we get to verse 5. So Revelation chapter 20 verse 5. John continues, and he says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, the confusing part about this text here is verse 5, and it can be cleared up very easily by just taking those two sentences that are in verse 5 and reading the second sentence first, and then the flow and the continuity seems to flow a little bit better. As a matter of fact, if you have the New Living Translation, they take the liberty of doing that for you. And so the New Living Translation reverses the order of verse 5, and it says... This is the first resurrection. And then in parentheses, as a parenthetical thought, it says the rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. In other words, here's what's being said here. John is saying that those who rule with Jesus in verse 4, during the millennium, that they are part of the first resurrection. But there's a second group of people who will not be resurrected until after the millennium. 
And what John here is doing is he's contrasting those who rise with Christ by faith into newness of life, and he's contrasting them with those who will rise in a second resurrection, but they don't rise in faith in Christ. They rise to judgment. That's what, uh, what, what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus put it this way in John's gospel, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said this, Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead uh, in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. So what John is saying is this, is that if you are ruled by Jesus, look, you're going to rule with Jesus. And if you were ruled by Jesus, then the second death has no power over you. Why? Listen, it's appointed unto men, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this to face judgment. In other words, listen, everybody dies physically. Men on average, World Health Organization says 77 years of age. Knock, knock, who's here? Not you anymore. 77 years of age, average life expectancy for men, according to the World Health Organization. Women, it's 82. Now, I hate those numbers because I do the math. I'm like, I got 23 years left, I think, statistically. And so that kind of not so cool. But listen, after we die, everybody's going to die at some point. Ain't nobody getting out alive. After we die, we're going to face judgment. Paul told the Romans this. He says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. The idea being there, hey, look, you're going to die physically, and then, just as we read here, Revelation chapter 20, when Jesus Christ returns, when he establishes his millennial kingdom, there's going to be the first resurrection of those who have died in faith in Christ, and we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's the hope. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. He said... When Matthew 25, verses 31 through 32, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He'll set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these sheep that he sets on his right hand, these represent the first resurrection, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now the goats, the one that go on his left hand, this is the second resurrection, not to eternal life, not to the kingdom that God has prepared for you, but to the lake of fire. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a place of eternal uh, torment. You will be judged. And we're going to look at this. This is, this is, this is coming down. Uh, and and um, Colossians 3, 4 says this. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's part of the first resurrection. But those who are subject to the second death, hey, listen, where are they going to face the second death? They're going to face the second death at the great white throne judgment. And we're going to look at that in verse 11, but hold that thought. Let's, let's look at what happens here, verses 7 through 10. It says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. 
Okay, so again, just keep it in context. First resurrection happens. Jesus has set up his throne. It's the millennial kingdom. We're ruling and reigning with Christ. That goes on for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to be released from his prison in the bottomless pit, in the pit, in the, in the abyss, as we looked at uh, last week. Verse 8, and will go out, Satan will go out to do what? To deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, not the same Gog and Magog that you read about in Ezekiel 38, 39, and so on, um, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea, verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, speaking of Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, the devil... Who, devour, who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now why, 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 why this? Why doesn't God, as we asked last week, why doesn't God just put Satan in the lake of fire to begin with? Why does he got to let him out after a thousand years? Why does he got to let him out to tempt? And it's a real simple answer and it's this. You have in the first resurrection... You've got the whole church that's been raptured. We, by faith, we, we you know, give our, our life to the Lord. And so those saints that have died in faith in Christ, <coughs> those members of the church who are alive and living when God raptures the church and takes them up to heaven. You have those who have died in faith in Christ during the tribulation uh, period. We read about them earlier in Revelation. They're, they're hidden there under the altar with Christ. And when Christ returns in his second coming, they come with him. All of these are present in the, the first resurrection. And all of these are present in the millennial rule of Christ. But there's another group that's present during the millennial reign of Christ. And these are those tribulation saints that came through the tribulation who didn't die. And so what's going to happen is that all of us together are going to be here on the earth ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So all of those tribulation saints who did not die, what's going to happen to them? Well, a couple of things. One, when Jesus comes back to the earth, when he sets up his millennial reign, the earth is going to return to a Garden of Eden type of state. God's going to put it back in that state. So you're going to see lifespans greatly increased. You're going to, just as we read about in Genesis, people living for hundreds of years, you will, you'll be seeing that when Christ returns. There's not going to be any more wars or famine or, or anything like that. Uh, probably the eradication of disease and so on. And so, so people will live a much longer life. And what else will they do? They'll have kids is what they'll do. They'll raise families. And so what God does is he gives to those children the exact same opportunity, the exact same freedom that he gave to Adam and Eve. And listen, the exact same freedom he gives to you. God doesn't force himself on anybody. What he says is, look, I love you. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to go to hell. But I'm giving you a choice because that's what love is. Love gives you a choice. If you forced your spouse to stay with you, that's not love. If, if you know, he or she is chained, stay there and can't, can't ever leave because you love them, that's not really love. So God gives us a choice. He will give these millennial saints a choice as well. And so he gives them this choice. How? By releasing Satan after a thousand years. And he says, here you go. I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life. 
But listen, just as Adam and Eve in the perfect scenario of the Garden of Eden choose to sin against God, there will be those during this millennial, at the end of this millennial reign when Satan is released, there will be those that follow after Satan. And that's just how it's going to go down. And what's going to happen to those? Well, God deal, deals with them very swiftly. Fire comes out of heaven. They are consumed. And now what do we got? Now we got verse 11. This is where we end up. Now we have the great white throne judgment when God once and for all judges Satan's sin and death. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, whose faith faced the earth and the heavens uh, fled away, from whom whose uh, faith they fled away, and there was found no place for them. He's talking about those who have rejected God. He's like, look, you reject God, there ain't no other place for you. But the lake of fire is the, is the implication. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Let me just pause right there and just say this. You, know, you do not want to be judged according to your works. Okay, You want to be judged according to the work of Jesus Christ. Because your works, the Bible says, your best works are as filthy rags to God. You do not want to be judged according to your works. And and, and I, I say this often, and it's important that we keep this in mind. Salvation, it's by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we will believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, and if we will believe that, that he died on the cross for our sins in our place, and if we will make that confession to say, God, I'm a sinner by nature and by choice, and there's nothing good that lives in me, and my only hope is to trust in your work on the cross, then I will be saved. Now, Where the rubber meets the road in this faith is in this question, how do you know that you are going to heaven? And when I ask people that, they'll say, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, define that for me. What does that mean? A lot of people who say that they're going to heaven because they're Christian, when I ask them to define it, they define it something like this. Well, I'm a Christian and I'm basically a good person. And, and I hope that, you know, when, when I die, you know, my good works are going to outweigh my bad works. No, that's Jesus plus something else. And Jesus plus something else is nothing, okay? So, you, so it's your profession of faith is either I'm going to heaven because I'm a horrible sinner, but God is good and I'm trusting in his righteousness and I've surrendered my life to him and I've invited Christ to be my Lord and Savior. It's that or it's nothing. And so what we have here is that there are going to be those people, as we read here, that they want to live according to their own works. And so there will be those who, who you know, say, oh, Lord, Lord, I, I do all this stuff. You're Lord. And he's going to be, no, you're not. I'm not your Lord. You're, you're not trusting in me. You're trusting in you. You're trusting in your works. Or there's going to be those people who flat out reject him. Either way, verse 12 says, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now this could be talking about just people who have died in the seas over the course of the world's history, mariners and so on. Or it could be talking about those that were 
in the days of, of, of Noah and the flood, when God first flooded the earth and there was so much sin. Uh, probably more so that, but the seas gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, and just in case you didn't get it the first time, he repeats himself, each one according to his works, not according to the work of Christ, Verse 14 and 15, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen, it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. You will die physically, and then you will face judgment. Now, these, second death, they die spiritually because they're not, their lives are not hidden with Christ in God. And listen, it all comes down to this, and this is where I finish, this is where I conclude, and a worship team comes up, and we finish up right now. And it says this, look, it all comes down to who or what rules you. Who or what rules you? That's what the question you have to answer. Are you ruled by the Lord and His Word, or are you ruled by your lusts and by your emotions and by the way that seems right to a man? Are you ruled by your own sinful pride? That's the question. Listen, are you ruled by these things? Every one of us has to make this choice who we will trust in by faith. I read this quote this week. I've heard it before, but man, every time I hear this quote, it just rocks me. Guy by the name of G. Gordon Liddy. Those of you who are old enough to remember Watergate, you remember G. Gordon Liddy. He was the chief counsel to President Richard Nixon. Uh, he was the guy that was the uh, in charge of the plumbers division, uh, and he actually engineered the Watergate break-in um, and uh, found himself in jail. But G. Gordon Liddy says this in his autobiography. He says, "Quote: I have found within myself all I need and all I shall ever need." I'm a man of great faith, but my faith is in George Gordon Liddy. I have never failed me, end quote. Listen, what George Gordon Liddy forgot and lost sight of, and what maybe you've lost sight of is this, Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We will either rule and reign with Christ because we have given him rule and reign in our hearts or we will be judged by Christ. There's no in-between. And as we go to the Lord in prayer today, we need to present this to him and ask him to search our hearts.